Hey, this is Heath Paget, and welcome to the RV Entrepreneur Podcast, episode 48. The RV Entrepreneur is a weekly podcast where I interview nomadic entrepreneurs who are running a business while traveling full-time. I'm recording today's podcast from Fredericksburg, Texas, awesome hill country outside of Austin, where we are three days away from our first ever RV Entrepreneur Summit that Alyssa and I are hosting. We've completely booked out this campground, and we're going to have three days of speakers, workshops, and meetups on running a business from your RV. I've mentioned this a couple times on the podcast. We weren't sure what kind of reception we would get. We were expecting 30 to 50 people, and our final tally is 120 people who are going to be attending this weekend. So it's amazing. We've got overflow people uh, boondocking here at the campground. It's going to be awesome. I'm not sure if there's another gathering out there of nomadic entrepreneurs and I'm excited just to hang around, kick around ideas with people this weekend. We've got a lot, lot of awesome speakers. But if you weren't able to make this first RV Entrepreneur Summit, you can actually tune into the live stream. We're going to be live streaming the event on Facebook. You can watch the speakers, the panels from the weekend. Obviously, not everything. We're going to be doing a wine tasting stuff. That's not going to be included on the live stream. But if you go to Facebook, type in Heath and Alyssa, and you'll see on our Facebook page, you can like it. And that's the page that we're going to be live streaming from. So you can check out the live stream from the weekend. We'll kick that off on Saturday morning, February 25th, which is in a few days. So if you listen afterwards, we're going to find a place to put it, but we haven't decided yet. But if you're here beforehand, you can tune in and watch some of the weekend. And before we dive in to the podcast episode today with Jason Wyatt on building an Amazon business, I want to give you guys an update on where things are with campground booking. Uh, the past few years, Alyssa and I have documented what we've learned as we've built up our income on the road. We've published our income reports on our website, shared dumb things that we've done, uh, how we've gotten clients on the road, and we even go into more detail perhaps on the blog than we've done on the podcast. But I wanted to give you guys an update on campground booking because this is different. We're building a software business on the road. I've got two co-founders. Alyssa's not really involved uh, in this business other than having to hear me talk about it a lot. And we're six months in, so I feel like that was a good kind of checkpoint. And I just want to give you guys a realistic gl glimpse into where we are with things right now. So one, we've built out a working property management solution for campgrounds, uh, a software for them to take online reservations, a little widget they can throw up on their website, a calendar widget like you'd see at a hotel, and they can accept, accept online reservations, uh, invoice customers who are staying at their campground for longer periods of time. We have a basic POS system where they can add on kayaks or candy at the store and things like that. Basically, they can manage their property with our software. It's pretty basic, but it's a huge step up for what a lot of campgrounds are currently using, which are pen and paper on some occasions or a basic Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. And so it's a huge step up for a lot. And we've had a pretty good reception so far, but we aren't as far along as we would have liked. We just have a couple campgrounds who are actually using our system to take in reservations uh, online and over the phone. So a couple is not huge. They're what you call beta customers because it's, we're still in beta. We haven't technically launched yet, but we've gotten good feedback from them so far. And then we have around five or 10 campgrounds who are in the pipeline who we've done demos with, and they're looking at potentially jumping on and using campground booking. And I was kind of hesitant to write this. Um, I wrote this on a blog, and then I'm also sharing it with you guys on the podcast because it's not as far along as I'd like to be. Uh, with six months into building the software product, I wanted to be further along, uh, 10, 15, 20 paying customers using our system instead of just a couple beta customers. But software as a service takes a lot longer than I realized. And I'm sure reading a lot of other blogs, I've kind of seen a lot of other people feel the same way. 
And so I could have waited until we were much further along to share that with you guys and kind of look back and say, oh, yeah, you know, the first couple of years were really hard. But then we blew it out of the water. We made lots of money. Tons of campgrounds are using our software. But sometimes it's not as realistic when you're looking back. You're not in the weeds. You can kind of craft this really amazing story around how amazing things were and how easy it was or how hard it was or whatever. But it's different when you're actually in the weeds. So I want to share with you guys two struggles that I've currently had while getting campground booking off the ground and a few things that I've learned in this process. So we'll dive into that. Struggle number one of getting campground booking uh, to get traction has been just focus. Creating the time to focus on the startup while still growing Alyssa's and my income has been the most challenging part of campground booking by far. Every day has been a battle to figure out the most important tasks for each one. We've got the podcast, the blog, we're starting to do vlogging, vlogging, and we still got client work that we're doing and the summit. And so uh, not to just I'm not trying to get empathy or anything like that, but it's been difficult for me to balance. And so every day I'm constantly trying to hone in and do only the most important things. And a conversation I had the other day with my friend Nathan Berry, who runs ConvertKit, email marketing company, he said it was insanely difficult for him to focus on both his educational side of his business. He, he developed iPhone apps, had a few courses on how to develop and design iPhone applications, and it did really well. He was making around $250,000 a year with that. And he was also trying to get ConvertKit started. And he said, ultimately, he both of those businesses failed because he wasn't able to give either one his best. And ultimately, he had to just focus wholeheartedly on ConvertKit and let the other business pretty much die so he could have his software business succeed. And I'm kind of realizing that Nathan's a really smart guy. And if he couldn't build both of those at the same time, then... I have to constantly be reevaluating my priorities and focusing on what's most important. So the short-term solution that I've got to carve out more time for campground booking is I hired a podcast editor, saves me around 20 hours a month, so I don't have to do those. Um, bulk writing blog posts to be released over coming weeks, uh, focusing very little of my time on vlogging. I basically handed that over to Alyssa. We started a YouTube channel, but she's producing all those. She's editing all those. We go out and do adventures together. I help her film, but it's not actually taking a lot of my time and bandwidth to focus on those. And then the last thing is putting off worrying about social media or writing blogs or content or anything like that for campground booking uh, to try to get traction that way, because that's kind of a higher hanging fruit. And our most initial strategy is just to get 10 campgrounds using our system, make sure it works, get feedback from them, and move things forward. That is the only thing that matters right now, and that's what's going to move the mark, the needle the most for us. Struggle number two so far in campground booking has just been getting in touch with campground owners. Seeing as we're trying to help campground owners who haven't yet jumped on the technology train, shooting them an email and citing the fact that we're full-time RVers, we've been doing this a few years, we've got this blog and this podcast, like they don't care. And so it's been difficult to just get in touch with some of these campground owners. So we're going to likely have to implement some type of in-person strategy, partner up with other RVers who are traveling. And, um, and likely it's also just been a lack of focus as we haven't been hardcore selling so far. And so that's been the second struggle. And the six things that I've learned so far in building campground booking, traction is, an, is impossible without focus. Again, coming back to focus, dedicating 10 to 15 hours a week to campground booking. That number has to change and I need to be able to put more time into this business. Uh, second thing I've learned, all priorities are not created equal. Like I said, we're not doing social media or anything at this point for campground booking because the only thing that matters is hitting that initial revenue, getting 10 campgrounds to use us, making sure we get some type of product market fit. The third thing is giving beta customers a realistic timeline. We had a campground who uh, we first got introduced to, I think, in November. 
and they asked us if we could have everything up and running for them by the first week of January. We said, yeah, no problem. We're almost already there. Should be no problem. It is now the third week of February, and still not everything is running just right for them because other things come up. We have to update the entire system to get it moving faster because they're taking reservations. And it's caused some friction between us and our early beta customer because we gave them an unrealistic timeline that we genuinely thought we could hit, uh, but we haven't. And so as we're working and bringing on more campgrounds, we're giving them a more realistic timeline that they're partnering with us. We're building this out with them as we go. And so that's something that we've we've kind of been learning uh, a little bit the hard way. The fourth thing is asking for advice from too many people on your idea is a bad idea. Uh, And what I mean by that is solving online reservations in the camping industry is a complex problem. And everyone I've talked to, everyone I've talked to has a different idea on how to solve that issue. Some some people think you should build out an OTA site kind of like Expedia or Hotels.com and really focus on building a marketplace and just pushing reservations and trying to build up traffic. Other people think that we should be giving away our software for free or for really expensive and The point is, I spent too much time just asking other people for their opinion on a problem that hasn't been solved. If somebody had a clear idea on how to solve it and had the skills to do it, it wouldn't be such a big problem in our industry. And so it's kind of been paralyzing a little bit because you talk to four or five different people who who are smart and you admire, but then you get conflicting advice from everyone. And so I've been struggling a little bit with that. Um, And it just caused more paralysis than action and ultimately kind of having to lean back and trust my own judgment and say, you know what, I do know quite a bit about this industry. I'm going to give it the best that I've got and think and and go in a direction instead of just kind of skimpering around at the beginning stages because I'm trying to listen to too many people. It just doesn't work. The fifth thing is any wins are big wins at the early stage. When we first started blogging, I was pumped if someone left a comment on our blog or sent us an email. And now those things are a little bit overwhelming because they happen a lot in a good way. But with campground booking, just receiving an early beta request uh, from somebody coming to our website and checking it out or having a campground say, yeah, you know what, go ahead and upload some sites in the system. We'll give you guys a try. Uh, That's huge. And (laughs) really nothing other than to say that uh, any wins are big wins at the early stage. And the last thing is patience and realism are my friend. Most of my life, I'm a dreamer and a huge optimist. But when it comes to our software business, I've slowly been converting myself to a more realistic and patient person, which is really hard, but trying to focus on the long term and saying that we're going to be in this business for the next five, 10 years, because it's something I'm passionate about. It's a huge need, and it's just going to take time. Talking with uh, my friend Nathan, again, I bring that up because he did something similar, but in a totally different industry. It took him 28 months for ConvertKit to hit $5,000 reoccurring monthly revenue. And realizing that it just takes time to build a software as a service and ultimately change the way an industry is doing things, it takes time and patience. And they're not always my strong suit, but I'm working on them. Um, So I wanted to just give you guys this brief update with where we are with campground booking so you know what's kind of happening in my life as I'm interviewing these folks and as we're traveling. But today I'm interviewing Jason Wyatt. He is a full-time RVer and retail arbitrage specialist. (laughs) Retail arbitrage is when you buy products for a low cost from places like stores or flea markets and you flip them on Amazon for a profit. 
Jason also runs an online community to help people get started on Amazon over at Touring Freedom in a Facebook group with almost 3,000 members that we'll link up to in the show notes on our website. He was also recently featured in an article on the front page story of the Wall Street Journal documenting his RV-based business. A few things that we talk about on this episode is what is fulfillment by Amazon and what are the benefits of using it? What products should you start looking for when selling through FBA? Why this business is perfect for the RV lifestyle and how much time you should put into an FBA business before you're making a full-time income on the road and a lot more. Uh, This episode is really good. It's very tactical, so we get into the weeds a lot, but starting an Amazon-based business is really something that you can do from anywhere if you're RVing. And so I'm excited for you guys to hear this interview with Jason. Let's get into it. What's up, Jason? How's it going? So for people who don't know, can you give your own definition of what is retail arbitrage? Because it's a really cool word. Well, arbitrage is basically uh, buying something from one place and selling it for a profit and another. So what retail arbitrage is, is finding a product in a retail location at a discount, usually on a clearance shelf or, you know, there's other creative ways to, to add value to something. And then you take that online where there's a bigger market and sell that for a profit. And that's possible because in a local market, there's not as many people to, to market to. So they may have overstocked an item or, or something like that. And you can bring it online where there's people just dying to have that product in a location that may, they may not even have access to that product in their local stores, but you can provide it to them online and, and profit from it. Yeah. I, on, so on the fourth episode of the podcast, I believe it was, I was talking with a couple and they sell on Etsy and they sell vintage goods on Etsy and it's a lot of paper products and maps and things like that. And they actually go to small town garage sales, flea markets and things like that, throw them up on Etsy because what they realized was that people in the city uh, or in cities don't have a lot of access to go to a flea market or garage sales. It's just more difficult to find versus when you're in small towns and every Saturday there's a ton of garage sales and and uh, estate sales that you can go to and things like that. So is it a similar kind of thing where it's a lot of people in the cities buying or is it just all across the board? If you can't find something in an area, it, there may be a, a surplus in another area and people can find it and capitalize on that? Right. That's the idea is a, is a surplus in one area and then a uh, deficit of supply in another area. And you just connect the dots and and you profit from, you know, connecting those dots. And I love that episode number three. Uh, it got, got my mind reeling and, and, you know, where can I stuff all these little magazine clippings and <laughs> carry them on the road? Um, the, the beauty of the way I do it and using Amazon is I use a service called FBA, which stands for Fulfillment by Amazon. And you don't have to hold that inventory at all. Once you find it, you box it up and you can ship on your schedule. All you're doing is shipping it to Amazon. They hold it in their warehouse until it sells to a customer. They ship it to the customer on your behalf. And that's how products qualify for prime shipping as well. There's a lot of people familiar with Amazon Prime, free two-day shipping. Amazon Prime is is my lifeblood. It's everything. Yeah, I know, right? 
So that's how that's how things qualify for Amazon Prime is getting it to Amazon's warehouse. They hold it so that they can ship it out to the customer. And there's last estimate I heard was Amazon won't actually release the real number, but the last a- estimate I heard was a million and a half Prime subscribers. That's a large customer base that you automatically can tap into once you send your inventory into Amazon. How how hard is it to actually get traction with a business like this? When did you start buying and selling stuff on Amazon? Actually, let's go back even further than that. What first gave you the idea to start doing this? The first idea? Um, well, I was living a life as a aviation electronics tech and was really tired of it and um, started researching how to make money online, just like everybody else does, I guess. So one of the most popular Google searches in the world. And then once you get past all the spammy content, right. you actually found some good <laughs> stuff. If you search make money online, I'm sure the first Give me $5,000 and I'll teach you <laughs> yeah. how to make money online. Oh, gosh. He just teaches you how to charge somebody else $5,000. Right, yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, it you have to dig through a bunch of crap. I don't have. I don't recommend anybody making that Google search. <laughs> But once uh, once I dug through all of it, you know, I came came up with uh, eBay first and I was on eBay for a little bit and just decided that wasn't for me because it was too much work. Um, I had to I was I was becoming a slave to my phone because every time my phone went cha-ching, that means I had to, to ship something. So you you ultimately you started researching ways to make money online, and the first thing that kind of caught your attention was just basic buying and selling, buying and flipping products. Correct. And and what was it? What was it about that that intrigued you? Of all the you know thousands or millions of ways that you could make money online. Well, I just it felt like that was something that actually provided value to someone, and I don't believe in making money in any way that I'm not actually providing value for the, the income that I'm actually receiving, you know? So of all these other ways of making income online, that seemed like the most valuable to the customer. Yeah. And so after you, you started it on eBay and when was that? 2013, I think. And so walk me through kind of the transition learning curve of you getting started on eBay. How long was it before you're actually able to take this full time and it become your full time gig? And you were, were you doing this on the side of being a, uh, an aviation electronic electrician? I'm sorry. Aviation electronics tech. And um, <laughs> sorry, I knew I was going to batch that up. I'm sorry. <laughs> there, Yeah, there is a difference. But yeah, I was doing it on the side and <sighs> It's, it's difficult to say, it's difficult to answer your question because I went through phases. I, I would, I would, you know, I started with nothing. I, I started with, uh, no inv- upfront investment at all. And I would build that up, build that up and, and, and get this, uh, you know, large sum of money, uh, that coming in and I'd say, Oh, I'd get distracted, you know, shiny object syndrome. Oh, check this out over here. If I just invest this money over here, boom, there goes my money. So then I, I was stuck starting all over and, you know, I was a, I was a difficult uh, learner. <laughs> I had to do that a couple of times. So I was just able to go full time, uh, February of 2016. And it would have been a whole lot quicker than that if I hadn't had to learn all of those lessons the hard way. 
Well, I mean, that's the only way to learn. Or, I mean, <laughs> it, I mean, you can learn other than the hard way, but you have to learn in some facet. And the fact that you're able to do it full time now. So, what were some of the products that you got that you first started selling and buying on eBay? What were some of the first products that you bought and sold? Well, on eBay, I was I was going to yard sales, finding uh, vintage clothing, uh, sometimes thrift stores, stuff like that. Um, uh, then I started uh, sourcing items from uh, from China and and selling them on eBay. And once I built up a little bit of uh, cash, that's when I went into full-on retail arbitrage, sourcing at stores and sending in Amazon. The from the point of selling on eBay to Amazon, uh, the beginnings of Amazon was only six months or so. Is there a basic amount of is, is there like a basic product that you recommend people when they're first getting into retail arbitrage that they go for? It's like non sexy products or like if I'm if I'm trying to get started in retail arbitrage, what kind of products would you recommend getting? Or is there a generic type of product? You said it exactly right. It's very non sexy. Because because I just want to throw this out there. I've thought about buying and selling like poop hoses for RVers, but not retail arbitrage, white labeling, which I know is a totally different thing. But anyway, keep going. <laughs> Non-sexy product. In my, world, in my world, we call that private labeling. Private uh, labeling. Thing. And, um, you know, I think the majority of the public calls it white labeling, but for some reason in the Amazon world, it's called private labeling. But yes, uh, there is an answer to your question, and it is very non-sexy. And that's books. Used books, as a matter of fact, you can find used books uh, at yard sales for dirt cheap. You can find them at almost every thrift store you go into. Most public libraries have an annual or a quarterly, uh, some kind of periodic um, book sale to get rid of old books. Or sometimes they actually ask the community to donate their books so that it's like a fundraiser for the library. All of those yard sales, thrift stores, library sales they're gold mines for books, especially yard sales, because somebody has a, a big box of books. You walk up and, you know, scan a couple of those books. And if you see profit, you walk up to the, uh, to the person there, how much would do you, how much do you want for that whole set of books, that whole box of books. And if you found a couple of, of items in there that, you know, you can sell for 20 bucks, they were only asking a quarter to 50 cents per book anyway. You walk away with a whole box of books for, you know, three or four dollars. You know, all said and done, you're only paying pennies for these books. And you can some of these books you can sell for, you know, 50 bucks a piece. Wow. So you're talking about you're talking about scanning and looking these books up. So I, I saw on your website, there's a way that people can scan. There's like a seller app on Amazon. So you can actually go into stores or garage sales and actually see what the potential value of these items might be, right? Right. There are free apps. Uh, one of them is actually provided by Amazon called the Amazon Seller App. It will provide you basic information as to the data uh, regarding the book, how many, how, what the prices are, what the fees are going to be, what, um, what the sales rank is. Sales rank is... Uh, to put it in general terms, just a, a reflection of how, how well something is selling. And 
you can use this data to make an educated decision on what to buy. There are other paid apps that give you more information than that. But most people start out with Amazon Seller App. Uh, if you're going to do books, there's another app that's that's actually perfect for you and will speed up the process quite a bit called FBA Scan. It's by a company called A Seller Tool. And that's what I recommend if you want to start out in books. It's uh, it's not free. It's uh, $30 a month, I believe. I'm not sure because I pay, I pay yearly, but the first month is, is a free trial. So you, you get the, the app, you scan as many books as you can for that month, you turn off your subscription, wait for the profit to come in from those books and turn it back on again. It's a perfect way to start out. How many times have you walked into a garage sale or a store and scanned something and realized that you could turn a massive profit on it? How many times? <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's hard to count at this point. I mean, do your do your eyes light up and you're like, is, oh, yeah, is, this, a, is this for real? I mean, because I would imagine that's like the pinnacle of excitement that you could have other than probably selling it for that actual profit. Oh, yeah. It's it's like uh, it's like a treasure hunt, you know, once you find that diamond in the rough. And, you know, a lot of times you've had to search and search and search to find something and then boom, you hit it. And yeah, you're right. It's It's just like. It's like those old Bugs Bunny cartoons when the when the dollar signs come up in their eyes, you know, <laughs> ding ding ding, you know, yeah, it's it's a lot of excitement and uh, that's that's a lot of the joy of the of the business is is the treasure hunt aspect, and you know it it's also I don't want people to think that that's all you can do is is retail arbitrage because you can it's kind of I, I see the whole thing as like a springboard the books will springboard you into retail arbitrage. The retail arbitrage can can springboard you into wholesaling. The wholesaling can spring you into private labeling. And it's it's a process where you're just building, you know, Walter White empire. Why does this make sense for people who are in the RV lifestyle? Well, for the main reason of it's, it's income and you don't have to hold product. You can move from place to place searching for product, um, you can ship from anywhere because you're shipping UPS to Amazon's warehouse and there's an Amazon or there's a UPS drop off in every small town, whether that be UPS store, uh, office depot or any, there's, there's tons of them everywhere. So it's, it's easy to find a UPS drop off just by using the UPS app. It'll, it'll locate you and you can find it from there. So you go, you, you find the products that you want and then you create a basic seller account and then you pick it up, bring it to your RV, package it up, drop it off at a UPS, and then the rest of it's handled, handled by Amazon, right? Yes, that's it in basic terms. Yeah. If you had to break down kind of a pie chart of the products that you have currently on Amazon at the moment, what would that look like? I guess by, yeah, by category. I would say probably... Uh... Okay, if my math is wrong when you add this up, don't call me out <laughs> on good, it. You're good. You know, I'm from Georgia and we're real bad at math. <laughs> but, you know, a third books, another uh, third um, retail arbitrage, and then the other third is comprised of wholesale and online arbitrage. Online arbitrage is a whole new world. Uh, different than retail arbitrage where you can actually find the deals online and purchase them online and then 
sell them on Amazon. So in, if you wanted to do that process, you wouldn't even have to handle the product because as an RVer, you, you're moving constantly. So it's good to have a stable address to, to send things to. Well, there's these things called prep centers. You can, you can make an account with a prep center, send your products to them, them, they will receive your product, inspect your product, prep your product per Amazon's um, requirements. Then they'll pack them all up and send them to Amazon for you. You don't have to touch the product and you're still making a profit. Mm, that's awesome. So that's just another reason why this business is perfect for the RVer. You do have to have a constant uh, internet access, but as long as you have that, there's there's no other requirements as far as where your location is. It's a completely uh, location-free business. What has been the biggest profit that you've turned on any product that you've picked up? Like, do you remember the exact product or one of them? doesn't have to be the top one. On one individual uh, individual product or I found that product and I had so many of them that it made a big profit in the end. Both or either. <laughs> um. Hmm. I would say it's probably the grill covers that this was actually mentioned in the, the Wall Street Journal article. I found some, uh, well, actually my wife found them. We were in a liquidation store and a guy had just stacks and stacks and stacks of uh, charbroil uh, brand grill covers. And he had them priced at $4 a piece. And my wife scanned them and they were coming up at about $28. Wow. And she called me over there. She, Look at this, you know. So I casually uh, called the store owner over and, <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, you know, there's not that many people in this town that have this charbroil grill. And I can take them all off, the, off your hands for you. And he quoted me a price, which, of course, I countered at a lower price. And it ended up I, I took every single one of those uh, grill covers for just over a dollar a piece. My truck was just loaded down with grill covers in the back. How, do you remember how many you had? Um. It was over 150. I believe. Uh, wow. I know that for a fact. It may have been closer to 200, but th they all. There was such a, a good seller. They all sold within like two weeks. Wow. Were, yeah, it was insane. I'm over here crunching numbers on my iPhone calculator. So at 200 grill covers that you paid around 200 bucks for, and you sold them for around 30 bucks. Yeah, 28, 20, 26 to 28. The price price fluctuates sometimes. That's but that's a I don't think that one ever got below twenty six. That's around five thousand dollars profit. Well, you're not taking out Amazon fees, but just off the top of my head, I would estimate that to be somewhere around, you know, three thousand profit. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, but how how feasible is it to be able to do this over the long haul? How many hours are you putting in a week to go out? and search for these items. And I've, and I've read enough of your stuff to know that you love doing this. And I know that I'm sure within, like with any business, you have to put in a lot of hours. So therefore you should really enjoy searching, finding these deals. But how feasible is it for most people to be able to go out and do this full time? How many hours, you know, for example, are you putting into something like this each week as far as to find the items and then list them? 
Well, first of all, I tell everybody, if you want this business to pay you like a hobby, you you treat it like a hobby. If you want it to want it to pay you like a business, you treat it like a business. And a lot of people want to get into it and just put in a couple of hours here and there. And I mean, that's good they, advice for any business, really. But right, keep going. Right. <laughs> but a lot of people try to get into it and just put in a, a hour or two here and there. And, you know, they they see a little bit and they come back. Well, you know, I'm giving up because, you know, I saw a couple of things sell, but, you know, I, I don't see how you make a, a steady income out of this. Well, yeah, you have to put in the time. And I'd, once you get used to what you're doing and automate some things, there's a lot of time that you have to put into it on the front end. And you don't have to you work a, a 40 hours a week. But when you're starting out, you're going to have to put in you know, 10, 15 hours a week at least. And the more hours you put in, the, the quicker you'll grow. And me, I only put in 10 or 15 hours a week and it took me, you know, years to, uh, to build it to where I could make my, make it my full-time income. But by that point I had things automated to where I didn't have to put in 40 hours a week. And, you know, right now I would say I still probably only put in 20 hours a week, maybe. Man, I'm so tempted to go out and do an experiment and roll into a town for a weekend and try to hit up some garage sales or estate sales. Or is there are there online resources that you can check out to see if stores are going out of business? Because I feel like stores are going out of business left and right. So I think like what you did with the grill covers, those are probably some of your best bets because Macy's are going out of business. All these various stores are just going out of business. And so it, it sounds bad. I shouldn't be laughing. But there's probably a lot of deals to be had if you can go around and find a way to easily source these stores, right? Right. Every time I see a store that's going out of business, that's just opportunity. So I try to keep keep up with it. And every time there's an updated list of Macy's going out of business or Sears or Kmart or whatever the next uh, place is that's shutting down, I'll post the list in my group so that everybody you know, has access to it and, um, they can find their, the nearest store near them to, uh, to hit up. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you keep becoming more and more known for doing real retail arbitrage, uh, these stores are going out of business. They're going to be like, Oh, screw Jason. He's here. You know, he's just going to come clean us out. No, I'm just kidding. They're not going to say that because they're going out of business. So they're going to want you to buy their stuff anyway. (laughs) Well, you know, managers are, are, are a funny bunch. Um, Sometimes when, when they find out that you're a reseller, they'll kick you out of the store. Because but, they know that they're, that you're about to turn a profit on them. Yeah. It, it's that's, really, their own, that's their own fault. Well, right. That, you know, they're the ones that overbought a, a individual product or whatever, whatever the case is that the reason that that product has profit, you know, Target is, is infamous for doing this. They actually have a corporate policy against resellers. But, and it's I can kinda, understand it's it. Hip, it's, well, I was going to say it's kind of hypocritical because they're buying wholesale. Right. And res- anyway, keep going. The one thing that I can understand is the, I guess you'd call them the doorbusters, the loss leaders, the, the ones that they advertise that they're selling for a loss just to get you in the door and hoping that you're going to, buy something else while you're there. I can understand 
you know, maybe putting a limit on how many of those you can buy or, or whatever you need to do to, to prohibit resellers from, from taking advantage of that, that you're using a, a strategical. But when you have something on the clearance shelf, you should be taking advantage of the guy that's wanting to clear that shelf for you. And a lot of them, I don't, it's like they get offended or something and they kick you out. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of intelligent managers out there as well that if you talk to them right, they'll actually cut you a better deal in hopes that you do clear that shelf for them. Because the more shelf, the more shelf space they have, the more money they can make. That makes sense. If I'm looking at buying an item, uh, doing some retail arbitrage, trying out, and I pick something up and it's a book and maybe it's five bucks. I, I doubt somebody selling a used book for five bucks. Maybe say it's two fifty and I can sell it for five. Is that type of item worth it? How much of a profit margin do I need to look at? Because I know there are a lot of other fees. Your time, for instance, to package it up, send it out, uh, taxes, uh, Amazon fees and things like that. So how much of a profit margin do you usually look for when picking up an item? That's a complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's different categories in books. I would expect uh, a, a pretty good margin. I actually call uh, call books meth margins because there's only two ways to make those kind of margins, and only one of them's legal. <laughs> nice, and that's books. So you can buy a book for fifty cents and sell it for fifty dollars, and you know books are the only one, only place you're going to get those kind of margins. In the other categories. Have you actually sold the book for that much or what's... Oh, yeah. Really? What uh, book? A, a lot of textbooks go for that. But the ah, one that book that sticks out in my mind that that doesn't... That was not a textbook that kind of surprised me Autographed was, Harry Potter. <laughs> no, actually, that uh, you know that may be good on eBay, but <laughs> not on Amazon. Gotcha. Um, one book that sticks out in my mind that was a surprise that it was worth as much as it was, was a book on uh, German shepherd training. Hmm. I found that in a thrift store that had a special on books that day and I bought it, bought it for a dime and I sold it for around $55. Wow. Now usually, you know, it is the nonfiction books that you want to stick to because those are the ones that actually have more value. Uh, you know, it, if, if you recognize the author of a book, you can put it back because Nobody's wanting that. You know, everybody thinks, oh, it's Stephen King. Everybody loves Stephen King. No, it's, it has no value. There's too many of them printed. So you have to kind of uh, stick to the scarcity uh, and, and find these valuable books. that There weren't too many of them printed. And most of the time, that's going to be in um, nonfiction, reference, textbook, things like that. So those are the biographies, some religion here and there. But uh, those are the kind of categories you want to stick with what all various factors do you look at um through these apps whenever you're trying to compare not just what they're selling for but also how many do you look also look at competitors so what are some of the key factors for people to look at once they actually find something they think could sell good i mean are there time are there circumstances where you pick something up and say hey this is actually selling for pretty good on amazon but you notice that there's also a ton of other people who are selling it do you still pick it up at that point Right. Well, no. If you uh, pick it up and you see that there's, you know, 150 other sellers, you don't buy that because when people, when there's that much uh, competition in the market, the prices uh, plummet. And we call that the race to the bottom because people, 
for some reason believe that undercutting the next guy is going to make their stuff sell faster. And that's just not the case in, on Amazon. There's only so much traffic that goes there. And if nobody's there looking for the product, it's not going to sell anyway. Only so much traffic, but it's roughly probably like a fifth of the internet, <laughs> right? It's an <laughs> right. insane amount. You know, here's a statistic for you. First of all, half of the sellers on Amazon, half of the half of the transactions on Amazon are from third-party sellers. Then you, I saw in uh, one of the business magazines the other day that 85% of all online transactions between Black Friday and Cyber Monday this past year were on Amazon. Wow. So, yeah, that's that's a big deal. Yeah, I think I, I sold... 60 copies of my ebook. So take that Amazon. No. <laughs> <laughs> what has there, I know a lot of the people, so in your Facebook group, you've actually been incredibly niche to the RV community because you're in an RV and you just felt it was very conducive to the lifestyle. Have you actually went out yourself in various cities outside? Because I know you're kind of stuck around uh, Northern Georgia at the moment because uh, your wife's getting some certifications and have you actually bounced around various cities and rolled into a new town and went to new uh, retail stores and things like that to find goods? Or have you mostly been in the area where you're at now? Well, I do have to stick within a radius, but that radius is rather large. During most of the week, you know, that radius is an hour away. But on weekends, that, that radius is three or four hours away. So, yes, I, I do it all the time. I'm, I'm looking for new areas all the time. And, you know, my my reach covers parts of Alabama, Tennessee, uh, North Carolina, all the way down, you know, below Atlanta. So uh, all, all on into Macon. So uh, it's it's a pretty wide territory where I cover. So new cities are, are popping up all the time that, you know, I, I find them and I say, hey, I hadn't hit that place yet. Let's go there. When you roll into a new city, is there kind of a default place that you look at going first? Is it a retail store? Is it a garage sale, a state sale? Like what kind of, if you're going into a new city, what's the first place you check out? And where do you find that place? Where do you, you know, what kind of resource do you find it through? Well, the first places I'm going to check out if I've never been to a place is uh, what kind of thrift thrift shops they have in the area. And of course, I'll just hit Google. And um, matter of fact, I just hit Tallahassee last week. I was at the full-time families rally uh, speaking on the subject there. And before I went, first thing I wanted to know is what kind of thrift shops are in the area. I went to Google, searched thrift shop Tallahassee, then took that information, what I found there, into MapQuest. And the MapQuest online and MapQuest on your phone, both, you can put in multiple points on, on, on your uh, route, and it will map you the quickest way between those routes, it'll order, it'll put them in, in the order it sees as best. Fun fact, my, my co-founder actually built that for MapQuest. My awesome. co-founder for Campground. Yeah, anyway, well, keep going. I've, <laughs> tell him thanks, because I've been <laughs> looking for something that'll do that for, for a long time. And um, Yeah, and that's, that's how I find, uh, I routed up my whole day, Saturday, hitting, um, hitting thrift shops, and I used Google and MapQuest. That's awesome. Did you find anything good? <laughs> here's a here's a funny story. We went into one uh, thrift shop, and the I had somebody with me. Uh, I was I actually uh, was teaching him how to how to source books, 
and she sees us come in and she says, uh, are you the people that, that called asking how many books we had? I said, yep, sure was. She says, are you resellers? Yes, ma'am, I am. Oh, I'm sorry. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, she's going to kick us out. <laughs> um, but no, she says, Friday is our dollar book day. That's when we, all of our books are marked down to a dollar. And we have several resellers that come in on Friday and, uh, and buy up all the books. So, so they had cleared them out before you got there. Right. <laughs> so we were, she could see the disappointment in our eyes. You know, we're headed towards the door. And she says, oh, wait, guys. I've got a back room that's full of books and nobody's ever gone through that stuff. I'm like, wow, you know, my eyes get big. Nobody has ever gone through it. That's a big deal, you know? So uh, we went back there and, and started scanning. We found two or three books that were over $25. Uh, one was actually over 50. So we, we uh, made a pretty, pretty big haul. I think we ended up coming out of there with over 30 books. So that was a that was a pretty decent haul, and to especially compared to how many books we were actually scanning, because it was just a corner of a of a little room, probably the size of most RVs bathroom, is the is the uh, size of the space we were scanning, and there weren't many books there, but there were tons of profit because nobody had scanned through them yet. Man, that's awesome. I. When I'm hearing this, it makes me think of whenever kids go to parties and they stay overnight, they go on, it's not treasure hunts, but it's like where they go door to door and maybe they start with a, a clothespin or something and then they're trying to trade up to get, what are those called? They're scavenger hunts. Scavenger. It almost reminds me of real life profitable scavenger hunts. That's exactly what it is. That's pretty amazing. How, how quick, because uh, I know you have this big community of people who are doing this from their RV, trying to get up and going. Do you have somebody who has been part of y'all's community who has just been a complete rock star and dove in headfirst into this? And yes. I'm just, I'm just kind of curious what has been one of the quickest trajectories of maybe somebody who just spent a lot of hours hustling and it just clicked with them and how long it took them to get to a point where they're bringing in, you know, maybe a few grand a month and, you know, basically covering their living expenses. One lady joined the group back last February and she tells me the story that she thought she was going to have to, you know, once uh, winter was over, she was in Florida at the time. Once winter was over, they were planning on going off the road. And they were planning on, I believe it was Texas, they were planning on settling down to. Well, she found she found my group and, and I taught her how to do this. And by springtime, when it was time to leave Florida, she was already making enough money that they just headed straight up the East Coast and all the way up to Maine. Wow. And she, and she was sourcing product all along the way and, you know, making the, the way to actually travel. There, she was making enough money to actually travel that whole time. And then come about the second week of December, uh, of course, that's fourth quarter. That's when all the sales, the big sales start happening, you know, if you can keep up with it. You're going to make a lot of money in the fourth quarter. But she posted a screenshot of her seller app because it, te it tells you how, how much you sold. And she had it set to, t to tell us how much she sold month to date. And it was over $16,000. And she had, had on, it was only the second week of the month. Wow. And, and, and how much of that, you don't know how much of that is profit. That's just total sales. But still, that's a significant amount. That's, that's total sales. Um, I would imagine probably about 30% of that was profit because I know that, um, you know, 
to, she started off with larger margins, but as she started uh, selling more and more, she was uh, working with lower margins for to in order to be able to work with a higher sales volume. Is that pretty common amongst people who run Amazon stores to kind of share those numbers, especially in kind of a tight knit community like you have? It's it's fairly common, yeah. I I don't like it a lot. Um, you know, it's tough to say no to because there's a lot of motivation there. But on the flip side, there's a lot of in, intimidation as well. Mm. And I don't want anybody to feel like, well, you know, they're knocking down these numbers, but you know, I'm nowhere near that. There, you know, I I I don't have a chance to get there because everybody started out at the same place. It's all perspective. You know? so, yeah. Right. It's all, yeah. It's so, it, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Part of me loves the motivation factor, but another part of me, you know, I, I realize that the, the deflation factor is there too. the, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what to call it. Discouragement, I guess. Intimidation, I, I think is a better word. No, I, I totally agree. I know, because a big thing that we had going on last year was just working on bringing in more passive income through our blog. And I'd go to somebody's website, like Pat Flynn, who this guy's bringing in over a million dollars a year on his blog. And I'm just thinking, man, we're just trying to bring in a couple thousand. This guy's over here raking it in. What am I even doing with my life? So no, that's a, that's not somebody, uh, that's not a good person to compare yourself to. Right. It, well, it's never, it's never a good thing to compare yourself. I've found to anyone and I'm hypocritical when I say that, cause I do it all the time, but I realize it's, that there's it's human nature. It, I think Theodore Roosevelt, not to get corny and philosophical and quote, but I do love Teddy Roosevelt. And he, I think he said comparison is the thief of joy and it couldn't be more true. Cause I, I struggled that all the time, uh, just in almost every aspect, but it's like what you don't see is if someone's looking at you saying, okay, well, I can't, I can't do retail arbitrage full time because I'm not as good as Jason or whatever, but you were hustling on this for three years before you went full time on it. That's a pretty significant amount of time invested in something before giving it up. I mean, maybe once you're doing it for three years, if you have zero attraction, then maybe you can say, well, maybe this isn't for me, but you know, it takes time. Right. And, um, I think, I think it was before we started recording, I mentioned to you that it would have been a whole lot, uh, less time if I hadn't got shiny object syndrome and, and taken some of my money and invested in, into uh, poor business decisions. But I, I learned the hard way. And, you know, once I, once I figured out that I needed to stick with, uh, Amazon, you know, I was able to turn it full time and, you know, it's it's good to it's good to look at these numbers for motivation, but you know, you're right. Comparing yourself is 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 not a good thing because somebody could be completely happy with their fifteen hundred dollars a month that they're bringing in, and then they get totally deflated when they see somebody that's bringing in ten thousand. You know, so I'm careful not to share my numbers because I want to teach people, and if there's, there's two possibilities there. If it's someone just starting out, they could say, well, look at, look at his numbers. I, he's out of my league. Why should I listen to him? He, I need to talk to somebody that's more along my level. What they don't realize is I've been there too. But the other side of it is that somebody could come in, see my numbers, and, and their sales dwarf my numbers. And they could say, well, what does this guy know? I'm selling more than he does. But the, the fact is, everybody can learn from everybody else, no matter what your sales numbers are. So I'm very careful not to, you know, share my numbers for those two reasons. 
Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I love that you have the Facebook group too, because it's, it's something that when people ask about, you know, making income and earning income on the road, it's it's almost like trying to answer how do you make money through selling on Amazon. There's no right way to answer that question because it's different for every person. I could tell you how we've made money and what we've done the past years. You know, we did a documentary, we had sponsors, we do product uh, video us for clients and we've done some blog you know whatever but that doesn't necessarily help you because you have different skill sets you have different things you want to do passions whatever and that's why i love the facebook element of the community is because you can bounce ideas off other people you get feedback you hear what other people are doing and that's essentially what you guys have done with your facebook group as well for selling on amazon right and you know that's that's kind of why why i created it because there were so many people going into rv groups and saying, how do you make money on the road? I mean, you've seen it. It gets posted once a week at least. Same exact question. And I, and I thought to myself every single time, well, it's, you know, you got to sell on Amazon. That's it. It's an easy way. To me, it was just common sense. Why, why aren't more people doing this? And I tried a little bit to, to tell them, oh, sell on Amazon and just leave it at that. Of course, they want to know more. And I can't explain all of it in you know, Facebook comment. So I thought, all right, well, I'm going to have to uh, make my own group and discuss this and try to try to teach some people. And, you know, it's, it was still difficult in the group. So I started the blog. So it was, it was, it was kind of a natural progression. And I finally got a blog post written. So now I'll have to do every time somebody comes into another group says, how do you make money online? Oh, I made a blog post about it here. Read this. <laughs> and, you know, and it makes it a whole lot more convenient. Absolutely. Uh, last question I have for you, Jason, is I ask this in each episode, but what does success look like for you in this lifestyle as your retail arbitraging the mess out of stores going out of business and helping others uh, sell stuff on Amazon? Freedom. Simple as that. One word. That's why I named my website Touring Freedom. I don't want to be uh, tied down and you know, the entrepreneurial lifestyle, uh, combined with the RV provides me that freedom. Awesome, man. Well, we'll make sure to link up to the Facebook group and touring freedom on the blog. Is there another, uh, good place for people to connect with you personally or just in the Facebook group? Uh, the Facebook gr group is great. If you want to join the Facebook group, I've made a short link touringfreedom.com slash FB, and that will redirect you straight to the group. That way you don't have to search Facebook for it. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jason. Thanks a lot. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to grab the show notes from this episode, head on over to heathandalyssa.com and click on podcast, and you can check out all the resources and links that we mentioned over there. And if you want to check out Jason's course on getting started in Amazon retail arbitrage, head on over to touringfreedom.com forward slash RVE, and he'll hook you up with a free seven-day trial of his course and online forum community. Uh, that's touringfreedom.com forward slash RVE, and that's a free seven-day trial that you can check out uh, in his community. And then it's like 30 bucks a month after that, which if you're getting started and building this business, I think it's totally worth it. Uh, thank you guys again for tuning in. If you haven't left a review in iTunes, I would so love to hear from you. We're up to 139 reviews in iTunes. I check that more than I should, shamefully, but I see every review that you guys post in there. And I thank you guys for listening and tuning in, and I'll see you all next week on the RV Entrepreneur Podcast. Podcast.